Good morning, church. It's good to see everybody for this first Sunday of our new year today. And as we uh, continue this morning in the Word of God here in, in Psalm 115, we're beginning today a uh, new series of messages. Uh, be about five weeks that we'll be uh, walking together through this time of, of uh, laying out a, a biblical vision for the church. I want you to think about this morning. What is the purpose of the people of God? What's the purpose of the body of Christ? This, this gathering that we call the church. The truth is that we, as a church, we can be involved in a great many things. We can do a lot of good things. But if I were to ask you this morning... What are the few essential things that we've got to get right? What are the few things for which Christ has called us and, and for which he has saved us? What's our purpose? Probably one of the biggest points of confusion as we think about these things is is that we live in this consumer-driven society. It's all around us. It's the air that we breathe. It's the, it's the soup that we, that we stew in, if you will. A consumer-driven culture that has, in many ways, in, in innumerable ways almost, infected the church and left the church in so many ways anemic and ineffective at accomplishing its biblical mission. Not too many years ago, the church experienced what was labeled the seeker-sensitive movement. And the seeker-sensitive movement basically was a movement that said, rather than rising up against the consumer culture, let's instead, as a church, let's embrace the consumer culture. And so churches began to view themselves as a consumer institution, they began to ask, what can we do to draw the most people in our doors? How can we create ministries and programs and events and activities that people will enjoy and will want to come back for? We began to measure our success based upon the number of butts in the seat and the number of bucks in the offering plate. Those were the two main measurements of a consumer-driven church that so many we're seeking to become. It was all about felt needs. What do people want? And how can we give it to them? But at the end of the day, I want to ask you this question this morning. Is that all the church is about? Or is there something more that happens when we come together as the people of God? Is there something greater that we were meant to exist for as the family of God? I want to stand before you today and declare something that we're going to keep declaring as we begin this new year together. That the church was never once meant to be a consumer-driven institution. Rather, the church was always meant to be a God-glorifying community. 
And I know very quickly we might have the thought, well, can't we do both? Are those two things mutually exclusive of one another? And the reality is they're not always mutually exclusive of one another. There are places in glorifying God that we can also be pleasing to people, but there are certainly, as you look at the scriptures, there are certainly things to which God has called us as the people of God that will by no means be pleasing to people. In fact, they won't like it at all. They will be offended by it. Even the cross that is at the center of our Christianity, the Bible says the cross is offensive. That the, the message of the cross is foolishness to a lost and dying world. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. You see, church, we were never meant to be about what we could get out of this gathering. That's the consumer-driven church. What can I get out of this church? And, and if I don't get what I want, then I'll go on to the next church that'll give me what I want. And when they no longer give me what I want, then I'll go on to the next church that will give me what I want. And I'll go church to church to church looking for that which will meet my needs, that which will fill my cup, the kind of preaching that I desire, the kind of music that I desire. It's a consumer-driven mentality that has laid the church bare and left it largely empty of gospel impact in this culture. But rather, what would the church be like if instead of asking, what can I get out of the church? I began to ask this question, what rather can I give through the church? Instead of coming and, and, and expecting to be filled up, I came instead expecting to be emptied out. You see, that really is a more biblical view of what the church is about and why it exists. Today we're going to talk about existing to glorify. We're going to walk through this morning as some ideas related to the very basic, most foundational, fundamental aspects of what it means to be the church of Jesus Christ. Some of this will be old hat for many in the room, but it's good this time of the year to be reminded of foundational things, to be set back on the right path. So here's my key idea for the day. I hope it won't be any, any more offensive than, than it's intended to be, but it's simply this. The church exists to glorify God and not to pacify people. And so take that in for a moment. Hopefully you'll uh, allow me some liberty this morning, set aside any offense that may have caused to rise up in you. And let's walk through the scriptures this morning here in Psalm 115 and see the reality to which God has called us. What he saved us for is more than our comfort and our consumerism. We're going to explore three questions today. For those of you that are note-takers and filler in the blankers, you can go ahead and write these out. Be, this is the main points this morning from the very beginning. I'm just going to lay it out for you. Three questions. First of all, what is glory? If we say we exist to glorify God, we first need to ask the question, what is glory? Secondly, why does God deserve it? And thirdly, how do we delightfully give it to Him? 
Okay, so what is it? Why does God deserve it? And how do we delightfully give it to him? And so let's jump right in this morning. Question number one, what is the definition of glory? Now, foolishly this week, as I sought a definition for glory, I first went to Webster's Dictionary, and I came away uh, just a little bit. It just didn't fulfill what I was looking for, to be honest. It was kind of a lackluster definition. I won't even share it with you. Uh, and then I've been, been looking at some of my uh, textbooks from seminary and began to explore where, what are others saying about this idea? How do we, how do we encapsulate the idea of glory in a, in a sentence or in a, in a paragraph that I could share with you this morning? And, and I never could really find anything. I went through so many different books, and then I had this amazing idea. Hey, maybe we ought to look at what the Bible says about glory. <laughs> I know, sometimes your pastor's a little bit dense. I should have started there, right? And so I began to explore the word glory, do a little bit of a word study this week. What I found is the word glory, and in its various forms, glorify and glorifying, words like that, occur over 400 times in the scriptures. This is a glory book. Over 400 times we find various forms of the word glory in the pages of Scripture. Beginning there in the early chapters of Exodus all the way through the book of Revelation. You see it time and time again. In the New Testament, there is one Greek word that's translated glory about 200 times in the New Testament. It's the Greek word doxa from which we get words like doxology. If you it came years ago to our 8 o'clock service, we would begin, Ralph Berry would lead us every Sunday morning in what's known as the doxology. Praise God from whom all blessings flow. Praise Him, all creatures here below. You may have heard that if you grew up in the church. You may have heard that old song called the doxology. And the word doxology literally means a glory word. Or a praise word. And the idea of doxa is it's praiseworthy, it's honorable, it's recognizing the character of God and giving him the praise that he deserves. There's only one Greek word translated glory in the New Testament, it's doxa. But then I begin to look back into the Old Testament. In the Old Testament, glory is radically different. Well, in the New Testament, there's only one Greek word that's translated to glory. In the Old Testament, in the Hebrew language, they had at least 12 distinct words that are translated glory. Now, this is kind of like I've shared with you in the past, you know, the way that we use the word love. Like I might say, I love pizza and I love my wife. Now, I don't mean the same thing in those two sentences, do I? I better not, okay? If I love pizza like I love my wife, either I have a real problem with pizza or I have a real problem with her, right? Okay, something is wrong. We use the word love interchangeably there, whereas in the Greek language, there are at least four or five different Greek words that demonstrate different types of love, okay? And, and, and so the same thing, though, is here is true with the word glory in the Old Testament. There are at least 12 distinct words in the Hebrew language that are translated into English as glory. Over 200 times in the Old Testament, we find this word glory. But it's 12 different words in the Hebrew. And what, and what I began to discover was this. 
The Hebrew language is trying to describe glory kind of like we would if we were diamond experts. See, when you look at a diamond from different angles, from different facets, under different lighting, if you really know what you're looking at, you really begin to see all kinds of different things. You begin to see the way that it shines. You begin to see the various angles at which it is cut. You begin to, to view that beauty differently depending on which angle that you're looking at and how the light is hitting it. And that's kind of a, a living picture of what glory looks like in the Old Testament. That it's as if the Hebrew language didn't have one word that would suffice. Instead, they, they tried to describe this idea of glory using at least 12 distinct words that have a variety of meanings. It's a wide variety. Let me, let me share some of them with you this morning. We're going to use this acronym, GLORY. Now, before I get any emails this week, I know glory doesn't end with an I, but have you ever tried to find adjectives that start with Y? It was either going to be yellow or I don't know what else I was going to go with. So we're going to use the Valley Girl spelling of glory this morning and uh, do it with an I for the purpose of showing you some of the ideas behind glory, especially in the Old Testament. First of all, glory stands for something that is grand and gleaming. When I say grand here, the idea behind that Hebrew word is, is that it's, it's big. It's huge. It's almost incomprehensible in its giganticness. It is, it is grand. But it's also gleaming. There's this idea of light, of luminescence, of shining brightly that's inherent in one of the other words that's translated glory there in the Old Testament. Interestingly enough, as you move forward from there, you find that it's also, glory is often a word that's translated, it literally means loud. It's the Hebrew word shabak, which means that glory is loud. It's kind of interesting, isn't it? It's a word that means it's, it's loud, it, it, it's, and it's also not only loud, but it's, it's luminous. It, it's indwelt with light is the idea for that particular word. Two more words that we find the Hebrew word, language using. One of them means that glory is overt. It's radically visible. Now, when we think about the glory of God, a lot of times we think about that which is hidden because we think about God as one that, that we can't experience with our five senses. We can't see Him. We can't, we can't, we can't hear Him uh, literally with our five senses. And so we think about God in a way being hidden. But when they talked about the glory of God, it was something that was overt. And one of the other words means it was overwhelming. And so when you see the glory of God displayed, especially in the Old Testament, what do you find people doing in response? I mean, the glory of God get, is put on display, and, you, and then you're just going, oh man, isn't that cool? God's glory over there, right? Cool, man. They go back to the, playing their video games, right? No. When the glory of God is put on display, people hit their faces in front of God. They are laid bare before God, and one of their responses is fear. They are radically overwhelmed with an anxiety, as in Isaiah chapter 6, when he beholds the glory of God, and he says, Woe to me, for I'm a man of unclean lips. I'm a sinner in the presence of holy God, and I'm completely overwhelmed. It's the idea of glory. 
couple more words in the Hebrew. One means that glory is rich. It's precious. It's immensely valuable. It's a, it's a treasure to be sought after. Another one means that it's radiant. The idea, again, of light, but light that is swelling, or light that is growing, light that is expansive. It is taking up every aspect of the space in which it resides. That's why the psalmist says, the heavens declare the glory of God. Creation is full of His glory. His glory is radiant. And the eye there on your outline, one of the other Hebrew words means glory is immense. In fact, the most often used word for glory in the Old Testament is the Hebrew word kabod. And kabod literally means heavy, intense, weighty is the idea behind that word. And so glory is something that is just immense, but it's also immaculate, it's pure. It's clear. It's filled with truth. It's unadulterated in every way. It's immaculate, immensely beautiful. And so you begin to get this sense of the glory of God, this grand and gleaming, loud and luminous, overt and overwhelming, rich and radiant, immense and immaculate nature of God. It's bigger than even the Hebrew language can describe. It's as if they're trying to grasp words to describe the glory of God and their language fails. But this is God's glory. So let's now ask the question this morning, so why does God deserve glory? Why does God deserve glory? Why does He deserve our praise? Why does He deserve the substance of the words, the descriptions that we just set forth in those 12 Hebrew words? Well, that takes us to Psalm 115. And we're going to walk through this psalm, and the psalmist begins, Not to us, O Lord, not to us, but to your name give glory. And then, for the remainder of the psalm, he lays out in the central portion why God is deserving of glory. And then he concludes the psalm by saying this, So give him glory. God, get glory for yourself. Here's the reason why you're worthy. Now he concludes the psalm, so glorify God. And we'll talk about how to do that before we finish this morning, at least in part. Why does God deserve glory? First of all, verses 1 and 2 say, because of his steadfast love. Because of your steadfast love and your faithfulness. This is the Hebrew word hesed that we've talked about in days past. It's this covenant love of God. It's, it's the love of God that makes grand and glorious promises and keeps every one. It's the love of God that is faithful and true and will continue to pursue His beloved at every juncture. His love is unfailing. It is steadfast. It is a firm foundation. And so we say God is deserving of glory because of the way He loves. Because of the way He loves us, He's deserving of glory. Secondly, verse 3, because of His sovereignty. I think Psalm 115.3 is the best definition of, of sovereignty in all of the Scriptures. 
And look what he says there. Let's begin there in verse 2. Apparently this psalm was written during a time when the Israelites were experiencing a, a great disaster. Some kind of difficulty was happening there in the nation to the sense in which the other nations were looking at it. Perhaps it was the Babylonian captivity or their slavery in Egypt. We could talk about many junctures in their history when difficulties came upon the nation. And the other nations surrounding them were looking at them and they were saying, well, where's their God? Obviously, their God's not very powerful, or they wouldn't be going through whatever the situation was. And that's what you're seeing there in verse 2. He says, why should the nation say, where is their God? And then look at verse 3. Listen to the response of the psalmist. This is, this is the definition of the sovereignty of God in two simple statements. Number one, our God is in the heavens. Our God is in the heavens, in the place of ultimate authority. He dwells in unapproachable light on the throne of heaven. The psalmist is basically saying, what right do you have to ask where God is? We know exactly where he is. Our God is in the heavens, and not only that, he does all that he pleases. That's what the sovereignty of God means. He does all that he pleases. Now, this is not the petulant temper tantrum of an elementary school child that says to his parents, well, I'll do whatever I want. That's not what's being said there. Because that petulant child is only deserving of discipline in that moment because they don't have the authority to do whatever they want. They exist under the authority of their parents and ultimately under the authority of God. But this is God saying, I do whatever I want because he has the right. He has the right to do whatever he wants, and he not only has the right, he has the ability to carry it out. All things are under his control. He not only keeps the planets revolving around the sun and the galaxies moving in their orbits, but he also controls and sustains our very bodies, continuing to allow our hearts to beat within our chest and our lungs to inflate and deflate with air, continuing to cause brain waves to move through our minds. He is in control of everything. He does all that he pleases. He's sovereign, and therefore he's worthy of glory. Thirdly, why does God deserve glory? Verses 4 through 8 speak of his singularity. What I mean by that word is his uniqueness. There is no God like him. And in fact, the psalmist begins to compare him to the God of all, gods of all the other nations that were saying, well, where is their God? Where is their God? He's in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. And now let's talk about your gods. Let's talk about all the false gods of all the false religions. Let's talk about those for a moment and look how they are described here. These idols of silver and gold, the work of human hands. What does he say of them? He says they've got mouths, but they don't speak. They have eyes, but they don't see. They have ears, but they don't hear. Noses, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they can't feel. They have feet, but they can't walk. And they do not make a sound in their throat. Earlier this week, because of this uh, Christmas crud that I've been overcoming, I knew what verse 7 was like. I wasn't making much of a sound in my throat. So it's actually better today than it's been all week long, praise God. But there's this place where the psalmist is saying, let's talk about your gods for a moment. 
The gods to whom you pay homage and worship. The gods that you glorify. They're worthless. And in fact, not only are they worthless, have no power to do anything, much less save your souls from sin and death and hell and the grave. Not only are they worthless, but look there at verse 8. This is the danger of idolatry. This is the danger of false worship. He says not only that, but those who make them become like them, so do all who trust in them. See, the danger of idolatry is this. We will inevitably become like that which we worship. You were created as a worshiping being, yet that is unavoidable in your life. You cannot help but worship. But the danger is this. You will become like that which you worship. And he's saying, just as these false gods are worthless, they are nothing So you become worthless when you worship that which is false. A.F. Tholuck said this, It is the curse of every false religion that man becomes like his God. The worshipers of a soulless God get soulless themselves. And while in our culture we may not have a great temptation to worship little statues, we do have false gods that we worship. Some of us worship our checkbooks. Some of us worship our status in society. Some of us worship our sports teams. Some of us worship our children. Whatever you find the most delight in, whatever you devote your life to, that is what you are worshiping. But be aware. Be aware that you will inevitably become like that which you worship. And if your worship is directed toward that which will not outlive this life, which will pass away, then be aware that it's worthless. And it will come to nothing. Only God is deserving of glory. Number four, why is God deserving of glory? Verses 9 through 14 indicate that it's because he's our shield and our supply. The idea of him being our shield means he's the one that protects us from the evil of this sin-soaked world in which we live. He promised that to Abraham back in Genesis chapter 12. I will be your shield and your very great reward. Same kind of idea that we find here. The idea of a shield, God protecting us from evil, but the idea of God being our supply, God giving us all good things that we enjoy. And in the New Testament says that every good and perfect gift comes from the Father of heavenly lights. With Him there is no shifting like the shadows. He is the, he is the unchanging God and He continually desires to give good gifts to His children to keep us from evil and to provide us with good. Therefore, He is worthy of glory, being our shield and our supply. And finally, fifth reason why He is deserving of glory, because He is our source and our sustainer. In verse 15, there it references him as the creator of heaven and earth. It takes us all the way back to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. The most foundational statement of Christianity is this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. That's the most foundational statement. 
not just of Christianity, but of our lives as people created in his, in his image, as Genesis 1.27 says, the most foundational statement is this, in the beginning, God, He was first. And He was the source of everything that came after. He is the source. He is also the sustainer of it all. We are not a deistic people who view God as one who created everything and then departed. He is not some kind of cosmic watchmaker that put all the gears in place and got the thing spinning and then just left. That's not it. He is intimately involved in every aspect of his creation. And if he were for one moment of time to remove his sustaining hand, it would all fall apart. Colossians 1 says that all things hold together in him. And for this reason, he is deserving of glory. But we might come back to these things in response, say, but there are so many that don't glorify him. Especially in the culture we find ourselves in, an increasingly godless culture, what has been labeled post-Christian, the church being pushed further and further toward the outskirts of society, which, let me just say this church, we shouldn't fear that. That's always in the history of the world. That's always where the church has most thrived. The church has always most thrived in the place where we're not at the center of culture, we're on the outskirts. Where we're not considered the popular people, we're considered the outcasts. That's always, always where the church has thrived. And so I, as your pastor, I'm actually a little excited about that because perhaps that means this cultural Christianity in which so many of us grew up in and in, in which we have bought into the consumer idea of the church, perhaps that's going to die because it needs to. It needs to die a radically awful death so that we can be brought back to the reality of what we're speaking about this morning. We might ask, what about all those that don't glorify God? In fact, so many that would seek to diminish His glory by casting aspersions toward Him, by speaking ill of Him, by rejecting Him altogether. I love what C.S. Lewis, one of my favorite authors, this is probably one of his best quotes. I would put it in my top three C.S. Lewis quotes. He said this of those who rebel against God. A man can no more diminish God's glory by refusing to worship Him than a lunatic can put out the sun by scribbling the word darkness on the walls of his cell. Just take that in for a moment. What C.S. Lewis was recognizing and what I think we need to recognize as well is that not only is our God deserving of glory, but He is infinitely glorious. There is a nothing that you and I can do to diminish the glory of God. And truthfully, there is nothing that we can do to add to the glory of God in some necessary way. His glory is not dependent upon us in any form or fashion. So why then glorify Him? Because of all the reasons we've just stated. Because of who this God is. 
because of all that he has done and continues to do. As followers of Jesus Christ this morning, the reason God is deserving of glory in your life is because he rescued your worthless soul from hell. Understand that this morning. That's why we glorify God. Because He came, as we sang a few moments ago, I love that new song, because He came and brought us out of the grave. Because we as dead men and women who had rebelled against God in our sins and had chosen death and rebellion against Him rather than the life that He offers us freely in Christ. Because we had chosen rebellion against Him rather than walking in His righteousness. We were dead in our trespasses and sins, and He gave us life. And for that, glorifying Him every moment of every day until He takes us home to be with Him would not be too much to ask. But I want you to understand as we finish this morning, this thing about glorifying God, it is far more than just a duty. It is so much more. It has to be so much more than just an obligation. Oh yeah, I'm going to come to church and sing some songs and endure the pastor's overly long sermon. And, and no, it's way more than that. And in fact, if that's all it is for us, if it's just duty, if it's just obligation, if it's just checking off the box, then we're missing the very thing that we supposedly are aiming for. So I want to finish this morning by asking this question. So how then can we delightfully glorify Him? Do you know this about God? His desire, a desire so close to the heart of God as this for you. His desire is for your greatest joy. God is no cosmic party pooper who's wanting to keep you away from all the good things this life has to offer. That's the way he's so often characterized. No, God's great desire for you is your greatest joy. He created as you, you as a being that desires delight rather than distress, right? Isn't that true? Wouldn't we all rather be filled with joy than filled with depression? Where do you think that comes from? It comes from God. The God who created you for joy, for delight. He wants you to experience the greatest joy and the greatest delight. But this is what He knows. It's Him. That's what He knows. And anything less that you give your life over to, any smaller joy would be God giving you second best. And parents, don't we always desire the best for our kids? Isn't that, isn't that, I believe that's something that God gave us as well, a desire for the very best for our children. And every generation wants their, the next generation, their children, to have more than they had, to have a better life, to have more education. They, we desire the best of things for our kids, don't we? Where does that come from? From our Father God who desires the very best for us and knows and knows, he knows that we will only be getting second best as long as we are worshiping the idols of this world rather than finding our true joy and delight in him alone. He is the source of greatest joy. So how can we delightfully glorify him? Let me give you two thoughts one of these we're going to come back to in a couple of weeks. First of all, let's look at the wide angle lens, the, the broad strokes of glorifying God with our lives. 
1 Corinthians 10.31, you're probably familiar with this scripture. Apostle Paul writes, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, that's broad, right? Whatever you do, what does that leave out? Nothing. Whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now he begins with the mundane, everyday stuff. Whether you eat or drink, we're going to do that today, right? Some of us have already probably had too much to eat this morning because of the wonderful hospitality that we had back here this morning. But eating and drinking daily, right? Daily, mundane, multiple times a day we do this. And he's saying, in the most mundane activities of your life, you have set before you an opportunity to give the creator of the universe glory with your life. In fact, St. Francis of Assisi he said, in relation to these verses, he said, I'm making it the aim of my life that I might be able to shave my face to the praise of Almighty God. And you say, well, what in the world does that mean? Like, can I brush my teeth in a worshipful way? But what he was getting at was this. In the small, mundane, every day, done it a billion times, activities of life, there is a richness of glory available when we recognize that it all comes to us from God. So yeah, in brushing those teeth, maybe there's a recognition that, praise be to God, you still got those teeth in your head because He's keeping them there. And for those that don't yet have your own original teeth in your head, praise God for dentures, right? Okay, so we, we recognize, though, that there's this place where in the smallest things, in the day-to-day, in the eating and the drinking, in the having of conversations, in the getting up and going to work or going to school, in the mundane, everyday stuff, there is opportunity to glorify God, to achieve the purpose for which we're, we were created, to achieve the purpose for which He puts breath in our lungs, causes our hearts to beat in our chest, causes brain waves to move through our minds. There is opportunity in the smallest of things to bring God glory. But here's where we go. God, I'd really like to glorify you in some big stuff. So give me a big assignment. Give me a big ministry. Give me the opportunity of just 15 minutes of fame, God, and, I, and I'll glorify you in it. We go to the big stuff immediately. Give me a big bank account, and I'll give a lot to your glory. We go to the big stuff immediately when what 1 Corinthians 10.31 says is start with the small stuff. Start with the day-to-day mundane stuff. Seek to give God glory in those things and watch what he does because Jesus said those who are faithful in a few things and some small things and some mundane, minute stuff, those who are faithful there, guess what I'm going to do? I'm going to give you more, greater, bigger. See, we want to go more, greater, bigger from the beginning when what God is calling us to is faithful in a few things. So that's the wide-angle lens. But I think the danger with the wide-angle lens is we can easily get overwhelmed. It seems so broad. The broad strokes seem, seem so big that I don't even know really where to start. So what I want to leave you with this morning is I want to leave you with a narrow focus. We've been asking the question, what, what would it look like for us to delightfully glorify God? And I want to show you 
over the next few weeks what that looks like in the context of the church. The redeemed people of God, rescued by the grace of God, by the blood of Christ, poured out of the cross. We have been redeemed and brought to Him. And our lives from now until He takes us home to be with Him are to be devoted to this task of giving Him glory in a very specific way. And so let's look at the narrow focus. We're probably all familiar with the scripture in Matthew 28. It's called the Great Commission. Jesus' last words before he lifted off the planet and went back to his throne in glory, took the seat at the right hand of the Father, and is now there interceding for his church. He's praying for us. What's he praying about? This. He's praying about this here in Matthew 28. Let's look at it together. And Jesus came to his disciples and he said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Here's where the Great Commission starts with the power of God in Jesus Christ. All authority in heaven and on earth. What other authority is there? Nada. There is no other authority. All power and authority has been given to me by the Father. And so what? So go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit and teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And then notice the promise at the end. It starts with the power of God in Jesus Christ. It ends with the presence of God. And behold, listen, pay attention. I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, in between, there's that verse that we often refer to as the Great Commission. It begins with the power of God. It ends with the presence of God. Those are, those are the, the bookends for the Great Commission, and they're necessary, by the way. Please, when you think of the Great Commission from now on, always begin in verse 18 and end in verse 20. You try to do verse 19 on your own, in your own power, without the presence of Christ, forget it. It ain't going to happen, people. Far too many churches in America today are struggling and languishing because we're seeking to fulfill the Great Commission in our own power and without His presence. But what is the Great Commission all about? When I was growing up in the church, and I did from the earliest memories of being in church, I think I was in the nursery the first Sunday after I was born, and, and so I grew up in the church, and I remember a lot of talk about this thing called the Great Commission. In good Southern Baptist churches, that's, we talk about it a lot. But I remember early on, as we talked about the Great Commission, I remember continually hearing the Great Commission summed up this way. Go ye therefore. Some of you may be able to identify with that. The Great Commission, go ye therefore, right? But what I began to understand in more recent years is that really the Great Commission is not about the go ye therefore. In fact, it's very much secondary to the commission to begin with. And until we understand what is primary in the Great Commission, the go ye therefore doesn't really make any sense because here's the thing. If I say, hey, dude, go ye therefore, what should be your follow-up question? Well, first of all, where am I going? But second of all, what am I going to do when I get there? And that's the source and substance and center of the Great Commission. 
We'll come back to this in two weeks and we're going to come back to the Great Commission together. But I want you to notice something. The Great Command in the Great Commission is not go ye therefore. In fact, in the Greek, that's not even really a command. It's a participle. It really means as you are going. As you're going wherever you're going. The main command is not go ye therefore. The main command is the next phrase which says what? Make disciples. Make disciples of all nations. That's it. That's the mission and purpose of the church by which we will glorify God. That is the measuring stick by which we will be measured. It will not be just about how many butts we had in the seat or how many bucks we had in the offering plate. It will not be a popularity contest about how much people liked our programs or our ministries. The measuring stick for the church will ultimately be this. Did we glorify God in accomplishing the portion of the great commission that he had entrusted to us did we seek to make disciples here in Breckenridge County and to the uttermost parts of the earth as he would enable us was that our mission our purpose and were we running after it in every area was our children's ministry devoted to raising up young people that would understand that their life was meant to glorify God in the making of disciples was our youth ministry wrapped up in the idea of raising up students that they would glorify God in the making of disciples? Was every Sunday school class in this building and every worship gathering that we have ultimately aimed at this end that we are seeking to glorify God through this God-given mission of making disciples? Perhaps we would say, well, what? In the world, does that look like and what does it mean? I'm glad you asked. I want to leave you with one thing to consider and to dwell on. I want to leave you with this, what I believe is a biblical vision for the church based on what we've talked about today. And you're going to see this statement again and again and again. I want it to be so driven into our existence that not only can we quote it, but that we begin to actually live it. That we exist to glorify God by making disciples. What kind of disciples? Disciples who gather together to worship Christ. That's what this gathering on Sunday morning is primarily about. We're not here just to meet up with one another. We're not here just to enjoy some hospitality food and some coffee. We're not here just to, to, to catch up on the latest gossip. I hope we're not here for that. We, we are not here for any of those things. We are here primarily. What is this gathering about on Sunday mornings? We come together to give glory to God by worshiping Jesus Christ. He is at the center of what we're doing here on Sunday mornings in these gatherings where he should be. Where, where he is not, we need a course correction. Because disciples, followers of Christ, gather together with other believers for the purpose of worshiping Christ. Because worship transforms us. You will become like that which you worship. We said that earlier, didn't we? So if we want to become like Jesus, we must worship Jesus. Secondly, a disciple is one who grows together with other believers in the word of Christ. 
Now, I'm going to argue here in a couple of weeks that that works best primarily in the, in the small group atmosphere. Yes, that some of that takes place in these kinds of gatherings, but it's so limited. This, this is so limited, this kind of a gathering, and how much you're actually going to be able to grow. There's so many testimonies in this room as I'm looking around this place of men and women whose lives have been radically transformed when they recognized that growth in Christ was not an option. And the best place for growth to take place was getting together in some form of a small group, a, a Sunday school class, a, a Wednesday night group, a, a small group where the Word of God was going to be at the center. And we're going to dive into the Word of God, and just like what happened in Matt's class this morning as they were walking through an overview of the book of Galatians, beginning to ask questions about what the Word of God is saying, beginning to seek application. What do we do with, with Galatians chapter 1? Beginning to, to ask questions and to talk with one another and to interact with one another. And what happens in those moments is what the Proverbs say. As iron sharpens iron, so one man sharpens another. There's sharpening that goes on. There's growth that goes on. And people are raised up in those environments in a way that rarely, if ever, takes place in these kind of environments. So growing together in the Word of Christ, it's not optional for a disciple. It's necessary. And finally, disciples that go together as witnesses for Christ. Disciples that see missions and evangelism not as something that a few precious souls do, the super Christians with the big C's on their chest, the ones that show up every time the church doors are open and they're constantly involved in everything and it's the 10% that does 90% of the work. No, it's not that. It's recognizing that to be a disciple of Jesus Christ means this, that I will go as a witness because he commanded me to glorify him in that way. And I don't go just out of duty or out of obligation. I go delightfully because, guess what? Somebody came after me. If you are walking with Jesus Christ here this morning, it's because somebody took the Great Commission seriously. For me, it was because of Curtis Griffiths took seriously the call to share the gospel with children. In the summer of my eighth birthday, having grown up in church all those years, but the summer of my eighth birthday, as he shared the gospel with us during vacation Bible school, as he was faithful to be a witness for Christ, the Holy Spirit came and allowed me to understand which, that which I had not understood before and gave me a desire to take hold of that which I had had no desire to take hold of before. Allowed me to see Christ and what he had done for me at the cross and to desire that in every way that an eight-year-old boy could desire that. And it radically changed my life because somebody went as a witness and brought the gospel. And so this is a biblical vision for the church. Yes, we can be about so many other things. Do we want to have a wonderful children's ministry and a wonderful youth ministry? Do, do we want to have great Sunday school? I mean, we, want, we, want, we want to have all those things, but for what purpose? I hope that you'll see as we walk through these things together, this is the purpose. And it's not just the purpose of the church, folks. It's the purpose for which he puts you on the planet. You exist more for more than just your vocation. You exist for more than just your family. You exist for way more than just your favorite hobby. You exist for so much 
more. He has elevated this above everything because in this, the goal is the glory of Almighty God. That's why you draw breath. Let everything that has breath glorify the Lord.